So, Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter because the argument kind of hangs together better that way. I'm not going to say as much about the first part because that's what Jonathan preached on. But I'm going to say a couple things because I think it helps get us into the rest of this chapter. We are going to talk about Christian freedom a little bit again tonight. Now, what's interesting is most students I know who've grown up in Christian churches, if I ask them, and I've done this over the years, have never heard a sermon explicitly on the topic of Christian freedom. They've probably heard lots of sermons on the dangers of Christian freedom and too much of Christian freedom, but very rarely have I met Christian students, students who've grown up in church, who've heard sermons on Christian freedom, what it is, why it matters. You know, what's interesting, you tend to think of the Puritans as being some of the most anal, uptight Christians who've ever lived, right? The, Christi- the Puritans preached on Christian freedom all the time. All the time. And um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Reformers, talked about Christian freedom all the time. Wrote books about it. And yet we rarely talk about it in our day. What's sad about that? is Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. If you had to sort of boil down Christianity to what the essence of it is, it's about freedom. Freedom. Now, of course, in our day and age, there are a lot of ideas about what freedom is, and they don't necessarily map exactly onto what uh, the Bible means by freedom. So to even talk about freedom... Uh, we have to talk about it from the Bible, and you'll see places where it is significantly different than maybe what you assume freedom is about. If anything, I hope that we'll come to understand that for Paul, the heart of freedom is not so much freedom from, or maybe I'd say it better to say it, it's not merely freedom from things, though it certainly is, and Jonathan talked about that a lot last week, I know. But it's freedom to something. Not just freedom from, but freedom to. In particular, as the rest of this chapter is going to show us, it's freedom to love and freedom to fight. So let's dig into this passage. Start at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. As I said, this is an angry letter because the things that matter most are being threatened. And the Apostle Paul thinks that The truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to everyone who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. 
A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves, which means not just circumcised, just cut it off. Fighting words. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or will you, you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Or some translations say, not able to do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, I'm going to cover this section in two weeks. So I'm going to go over the whole chapter, then we're going to zoom in on the fruit of the Spirit and the acts of the flesh next week. Oh boy, fun stuff. But tonight, I want us to look at this idea that not only have we been set free, not only is there an objective, real, actual freedom that comes to those who are Christians because of what Christ has done, but this is a freedom that is to be lived and experienced, particularly freedom to love and serve others and freedom to fight the battle that's worth fighting. So let's just cover the first thing briefly. Freedom is something real and objective. It's not just something held out there as a carrot for you to hopefully attain one day if you somehow manage to live well enough to please God. No, it says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's something that's happened to you. If you are a Christian, you have been set free. And Jonathan talked about this. This freedom means that you no longer have to earn God's smile. Every one of us was created, was born by virtue of our humanity with a longing, with a need to be right and to be praised for being right 
And you may think that the biggest problem you have is you just need to quit being right. No, you need to be right. And you need God to look at you and say, you're right. And you're beautiful because everything is right. But what the Galatians didn't understand and what this letter is trying to get at over and over again in different ways is that the only way you can be right enough for God to be pleased with you is if you quit trying to be right and you trust the rightness of Christ in your place. To be under the law means that you're still trying to be right by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And in their day, circumcision was a big kind of marker for whether you were doing the right things. But it could be lots of other things. There's lots of other markers we use to distinguish ourselves from other people and say, well, I'm right and they're not. But what Paul is saying is, you've been set free from all that because of what Christ did. Living in the place of sinners, dying in the place of sinners. And when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust in Christ, what you're doing is saying, God, I'm letting the record of Christ stand for me. I'm not trying to bolster my chances by pleading my best effort plus the record of Christ. I'm saying I've got nothing to offer to you, God, to make you pleased and happy except the rightness of Christ. But in offering you the rightness of Christ, God, I have everything. And I'm free. That's this objective freedom that comes. But it doesn't come, and you don't enjoy it or live out of it without a fight. All through this passage, Paul is saying, you're going to have to fight for this. Yes, you've been set free, not because you fought for it, but because Christ fought for you. But to hold on to this, to make use of it, to have it become a power and a force in your life, you have to stay vigilant and you have to fight. The whole letter is about this. And in chapter 5, you kind of reach the apex. Stand firm. Don't let yourself be burdened again. And by the end of the first section, verse 12, I wish the people that are agitating you would go the whole way and just cut it off. That's strong. You know, the, the translations use a word like emasculate because nobody knows what that means. But that's what it means. I wish you would take the knife and cut it all off. That's strong. It's a little gross even, right? But that's because this matters so much. We have to fight. But what in particular do we have to fight for? Look at verse 5. I know Jonathan talked about this, but it's just, it keeps, I, I think it anchors the whole passage. So before I go on, I want to make sure you get this. Paul says, for through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That, that phrase, eagerly await, is a very important phrase. It doesn't mean you just say, oh yeah, I know that I need the righteousness of Christ, and I prayed a prayer years ago at junior high camp, and now I'm covered. No, eagerly await means there's something about this righteousness of Christ that warms your heart. And Paul is not only saying this is what's true of real Christians, but it's also a method for how you become more stabilized and even, I would say, nurture 
this hope. We eagerly await. That means we fall more deeply in love with it. We, we cast our eyes upon it. We think about it. We rest in it. We rejoice in it. And in this, we find freedom. Freedom is something that's happened to us, but it's something that we also need to nurture and fan into flames. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about just being able to check off a box and saying, yep, I believe that. He's saying, no, it affects you. It warms your heart. The righteousness of Christ, the fact that Christ lived and died in the place of sinners is something that I never can get over. That's what he's talking about here. We've been set free, but we have to fight and fight to nurture and fan into flames this freedom by fanning into flames this love and satisfaction with the righteousness of Christ, okay? But then he goes on, and this is what we're going to talk tonight, yeah, the way he builds on this. Because a lot of people might say, okay, that's Christianity, that you've been set free by what Jesus did. That's not all Christianity is. Christianity is being set free from trying to earn God's smile by trusting in Christ. But the reason that you have been set free is so that you can live the law. Now this, if you're following Paul, you might go, whoa, wait a sec. I thought he said that we're not under the law. He's contrasting living by the Spirit with being under the law. But then here in verse 13 and 14, he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So he already is saying, look, you've been given freedom, but I'm going to tell you how to use it and how not to use it. And a lot of people are like, wait a sec. Well, that's not freedom. Freedom should be, I get to do whatever I want. But Paul, as soon as he says, you've been set free, he says, but use your freedom this way. Which seems kind of strange. And then he says, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law it's fulfilled in keeping this command, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, you've been set free from being under the law so that you can be under the law and live the heart of the law, which is to love and serve one another humbly. Does that strike you as strange? It does if you think of freedom the way most Americans think of it, which is nobody gets to tell me what to do goes long way back in our history. Don't tread on me, right? Don't tell me what to do. Don't interfere with my rights. We have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the essence of what it means to be American. That's not what Paul means by freedom. You understand that. When you look at this, you're like, wait a sec. Freedom for Paul does not mean freedom to do whatever I want. Because in the very next breath, after he says you've been set free, he says, and yet you're to use your freedom in a particular way. Your freedom is not just freedom from, it's freedom to a particular way of living. And this is in keeping with the way the Bible talks elsewhere. Do you know the letter of James? Girls are studying this letter on Monday nights. The letter of James has this intriguing phrase in chapter 1, verse 25, where James calls the law the perfect law that gives freedom. And for most people, they read that and they're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. The law gives freedom? Laws and freedom, in our way of understanding, don't seem to go together. But what if... What if real freedom is not so much being free to do whatever you want, 
but it's being free to finally be who God made you to be. In other words, if we went fishing, I know Caleb isn't here anymore, so and Caleb and Chase used to go fishing all the time. Of course, they never invited us, but it's true. Well, what if you were fishing, and all of a sudden, just imagine this, you're there on the riverbank, and all of a sudden a fish jumps out of the water and starts shouting, Freedom! Finally free of the constraints of the water. Finally, I'm no longer limited by the banks. I'm free. You'd think that was a little ridiculous. I mean, first of all, it's a talking fish. But you would say, fish, you don't understand. Your future is not very bright as long as you're celebrating your freedom from the water. And what the Bible is saying is the kind of freedom that God made you for is a freedom that fits with who you are. I think one of the most important passages in the whole Bible is in Isaiah chapter 54, where God says, your maker is your husband. For a lot of people, they've just grown up with an idea of God. He's our maker, and he demands we live a particular way. So we better do it. And then other people grow up saying, well, I have a God who's kind of nice and he loves me. He doesn't really care how I live. What kind of love is that, I wonder? But the Bible says you can't separate those two things. That actually, unless you understand that the one who made you is the one who made you to marry himself to you, who loves you deeper than any love you can ever know, unless you understand that your maker is your husband, you don't understand the God of the Bible and you don't understand Christianity. And do you see how that's a key to understanding freedom? Freedom means your maker is your husband. And his law says, this is what I made you for. Don't fight against this. You were made to love and serve one another humbly. Jesus, who lived out perfectly what humanity was to be about, lived that way. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And if you want to know, what am I to do with my life? That's it. That's it. That's what Paul's saying here. You've been set free from your obsession with trying to get God to like you. And of course, that brings such insecurity that you have to try to get everybody else to like you or else you have to blast all of them, bite and devour them so that you appear a little better than them by comparison. And God says you've been set free from all that. Not just so you can say, oh good, I'm free from that. But so you can say, let me come and love and serve one another, right? And how do you do that? Again, go back to verse 5. It's only when the righteousness of Christ warms your heart that you can be set free from having to build your own righteousness. It's the only way it happens. The only way it happens is if the righteousness of Christ, the love and grace of God melts your heart and sets you free from having, from having to earn God's smile. And it's kind of counterintuitive. It really is counterintuitive. I, I think one of my favorite ways of getting at this is this quote by Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher from the 19th century. Listen to this. He said one time, while I regarded God as a tyrant, 
I thought my sin a trifle. No big deal. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. So many people think that the way to get Christian kids to obey is to preach a hard, demanding God. But that will only get grudging obedience. It will never get love from the heart. The thing that truly gives you power to fight against sin and selfishness and your obsession to take care of yourself is to know the love of God in a way that warms your heart. It's the only way. It's the only way. And it's not enough just to say, okay, yeah, I get that. You need to stay in it, look at it, rest in it, rejoice in it so that it warms your heart. Fan into flame the righteousness of Christ. And when you've done that, then you're ready to fight. And that's where he goes next. We've been set free to fight. Now, it's interesting, this section here where he talks about walking by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, this is a somewhat confusing section, okay? And I think one of the reasons it's confusing is people tend to just jump on one verse or another verse. But if you connect verse 16 and verse 18, it's interesting. What you get is walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of flesh. That's verse 16. Then verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So if you remember your algebra, right? A equals B, B equals C, then what? A equals C. So gratifying the desires of the flesh and being under the law are two ways of saying the same thing. Now, why is that important to know? Well, because for so many people, they think, they think that what they need to do is just quit having desires and quit particularly having desires for physical things. A lot of Christians get confused about this and they think, well, to be spiritual means you don't have like bodily appetites, you know, whether it's for sex or food or anything pleasurable. And it's a very popular idea, you know, whether people say it explicitly or not, the message given to a lot of people is the more miserable you are, the more holy you must be. And you can tell how holy somebody is by how miserable they are and how much of the enjoyment of life they've renounced. That's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul, when he says that gratifying the desires of the flesh is equated with being under the law, what he's saying is gratifying the desires of the flesh means trying to live in a way that you earn righteousness before God. The heart of what it means to be the flesh is not so much physical, It means to be living in a way that you're trying to earn your own righteousness. And that's a hugely important insight. In other words, being under law 
means trying to impress God by your own righteousness. And gratifying the desires of the flesh is another way. It's the same thing. Now, to get into this, you got to understand two Greek words. Now, it's not often that you need to understand Greek words to read the Bible, actually. It is helpful to study Greek. It's not like every contradiction, not a contradiction, every conflict that people have about, I think the Bible means this, I think the Bible means that. When you study Greek, you, they don't sort of automatically all dissipate. You still got to read the Bible in context. And the English translations are really good, okay? But in this section, there are two Greek words that are difficult to translate, and they're important to understand. The first is this word, sarx. Sarx is the word translated flesh. And it can mean your physical flesh, your body, but it also, and particularly here, means what is sometimes called the sinful nature. Now, how do we know that this doesn't just mean your physical body? Well, look down at verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Okay, those are pretty outwardly obvious. But what about selfish ambition? Envy, jealousy. See, some of these are internal dispositions. They're not physical things. If he said the acts of the flesh are, you know, drinking too much and sleeping around and lying, but he doesn't. He also includes internal things, attitudes and dispositions. So flesh, the acts of the flesh must go beyond merely your body. And indeed, that is the case. The sinful nature is a good way to translate it. But there are other places where the word sarx really does mean your physical body. So you see, it's a difficult thing to translate. Sometimes it means your physical body, but sometimes sarx means this attitude of trying to be your own savior. And that's what it means here. So gratifying the desires of the flesh here is not referring to you doing things that feed your physical body. And that's, you know, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. And it's led to a lot of ideas about how you pursue holiness that are really messed up and not in accord with what Christianity teaches. In other words, for a lot of people, they think the battle, and this is why this is important. Look, if you're going to battle against sin, you need to know where the battle lines really are. Okay? And a lot of times we're fighting little skirmishes, but the real heart battle is not where we're fighting. And I, I want to show you here, Galatians 5 is teaching you where you need to fight and how you need to fight. Okay? And the first key is this word, sarks. The battle is not against our physical bodies. The battle is not against our physical bodies. But you know, I know there are people in this room that think, honestly, if, they, if you were honest with me, you would say, honestly, I think my body is the biggest problem I have. It's, it's true. I mean, all, all, you know, all the time there are people dealing with eating, dealing with body you know, issues, dealing with body image issues, dealing with cutting. So many people that really think my body is a, is, is a problem. And in some ways, like it even gets sort of like religiously transform sometimes where people feel like, you know, the best thing I can do is even treat my body harshly. You know, Paul talks about this in the letter to the Colossians. He says, 
that, um, that, you know, don't submit to the rules of this world. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. He says, such things have the appearance of wisdom with their harsh treatment of the body, but he says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. But for a long time, Christian churches have taught people that the biggest problem you have is your body, that you have this pure spirit kind of trapped in an earth suit. And it's not true. God made you physical, and he said it was good. Anybody seen the Noah movie yet? Right? Yeah, so this is right. Adam and Eve don't have bodies. They're shining, disembodied spirits. That's the lie of Gnosticism. It was an ancient heresy in the early church, the idea that your physicality is what's wrong with you. If you can just be set free from your body, the Greeks believed this, and a lot of other religions and peoples have too. No, your problem is not your body. Your problem is your rebellion against God, which takes the form of you saying, I don't need a savior. I can do it on my own, either by what I do or by what I don't do. That's what you need to be set free from. Your bodies are not the problem. Does your sinful rebellion work itself out in your body sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. And here's what's ironic is sometimes the people that are most harsh towards their body can actually be doing it in a way to control things. You know, often eating and cutting and those kind of things are more about control than they are about body image, really. Because it's like there's a way in which you can say, here, I can control one thing in my life where so many things have happened to me that I've not been in control of. At least I can control this thing. And do you see how it quickly becomes a way of even treating your body as a way to say, I'm in control and I won't be hurt again. It happens. And then there's, you know, but then there's this other version, you know, where people just think like the more I deny myself any pleasure, the more God will love me. Again, it's a way, it's sort of the religious way of trying to get God over a barrel. If I can just do things, like, and if God knows I'm miserable, well, then he's going to have to give me what I want. It's all twisted stuff. It's all brokenness. It's not beyond the power of God to deal with. If you're dealing with that, if, if you're fighting against that stuff, or if you need to be fighting against it, talk to us, Right? The bodies are not the problem. Sarks is sinful nature. But then there's another word here that's important, and it's this word epithumia. Now, the word thumia means desire. And a lot of translations translate this word epithumia as sinful desires. But epi is a prefix in Greek that means over or abundant. It's an intensifier. So really what the word means is not sinful desires. It means over-desires epi-desires. And that's what Paul says to here. As a matter of fact, Paul says that the spirit has desires. Desires are not a bad thing. Christianity is very different than Buddhism. Okay? Buddhism is the, the idea that you need to kill your desires. But I know a lot of Christians that basically are Christian Buddhists without realizing it. They think the goal of the Christian life is to not have any desires. That's not what Christian contentment is about. But that's a topic for another day. The battle, you see, is not just against your bodies, 
the flesh. It's against the sinful nature. It's against trying to be your own savior. And really where this works itself out is that these epithumia, these over desires, things that are good things, these desires, we have desires for good things, but we turn them into over desires. We turn them into ultimate things that we need to have. And when we do that, we put them in the place of God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Christianity teaches you have inordinate desires for good things. And a lot of people think, well, then what you need to do is just tell people that they're bad things, that they need to quit desiring. And I got to tell you, that's not what the Bible says. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that things like sex and food are bad things. But I've known lots of people. I remember a guy years ago who was dating this girl, and he said that she'd become his idol, and so he decided he needed to break up with her. And I, thought, I said to him, I said, well, what are you going to do when your wife becomes your idol? Because the Bible doesn't say that's a good reason to divorce her. You might need to think of a better way to deal with your idolatry. The Bible says it's a cop-out to, to try and just say to your idols, these are bad things so that I don't need them. No, you need to fall more deeply in love with the righteousness of Christ because it's the love of God that puts all other loves in their proper place. Christianity is not about trying to kill every other love so that somehow the love of God is the only thing left standing. It's about fanning into flame your satisfaction and your eager hope for the love of God so that all other loves are put in their proper place. You know, C.S. Lewis one time had a kid write him a letter concerned that he'd fallen more deeply in love with Aslan than with Jesus. And C.S. Lewis answered the kid's letter and he said, that not worry about that because the things that you love about Aslan are Jesus coming through Aslan. You understand? Like, there are beautiful things in that picture. But the, you're not supposed to say, well, it's bad, and I shouldn't read those books, and I shouldn't love that picture, and I shouldn't love those stories. No, the stories are wonderful stories. And you don't need to say everything else is bad so that God is the only thing left standing. But a lot of Christians, that's kind of how they approach life. A lot of Christian critics, that's what they do. Cut everything down. Cut everybody down so that I'm the only thing left standing. Where Christianity is the only thing standing. That's not the way to do it. Fan into flame the eager awaiting, the righteousness that you have. And that's where I'm going to go finally in conclusion. You have to understand that the love of God is the love that puts all other loves in their place. And you need to know this. If you're a Christian, you have it. You have the love of God. So whatever it is that you think you have to have or you'll die, it's really a way of trying to get something in your own way, by your own strength. But the irony is you're trying to get something that you already have in Christ. Are you trying to get approval? I know Jonathan talked about that, right? Anxiety and trying to get people's approval. You can't just tell your heart, don't care what anybody thinks. You have to rest and rejoice in what God thinks about you. Not so that what other people think becomes irrelevant, but so that it finds its proper place. Right? If you want to say, well, I want to have significance to my life, so I'm going to just work my butt off and excel at everything. Well, what, how are you get, what are you going to deal with that? 
You don't just say, well, I just need to quit trying. I need to drop out of school, you know, so that I can be, you know, set free from that idolatry. No, you need to rest in the righteousness of Christ so that the things that you're called to do will find their proper place. Because as soon as you put your hope in those things, they get spoiled, right? If they take the place of God, they bite and devour you. The love of God is a love that puts all other things in their place, which is to say, worship is the key to battling. Resting and rejoicing, not just acknowledging the righteousness of Christ, but resting in it and rejoicing in it. How often do you think about the righteousness of Christ? How often, when you feel anxious, do you think, Self, why are you downcast today? Do you not remember that Jesus is smiling at you right now? That God the Father looks at Jesus and says, This is my child in whom I am well pleased? Soul, did you forget that today? Sometimes you have to argue with yourself. Sometimes you have to mock your unbelief. Uh, one of my favorite passages, and I'll, I'll tell you if you want to go look at this some more, Isaiah 44. We use part of it for the call to worship. Isaiah 44 starts out saying, Being, Worshiping idols is insane, it's ridiculous. These things that you put your hope in, they can't save you. But God says, it's not just that I'm going to make fun of your idols and expose them as empty. I am the one. Remember, return to me for I have redeemed you. The call to rest in Christ is a call that comes from the one who's already given you what you need. So he doesn't just say, don't run to the idols, they don't work. He says, don't run to the idols, they don't work. And beyond that, I've already given you what you're trying to get from them. Come back to me. Rest in me. That's the way to fight. And that's what you've been set free to do. To love and to fight by fanning into flame and rejoicing in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray.